speech, money, data. There is no distinguishing factor between that. They're all currencies. They're all value. They're all something that you can now transport and own and digitize that you were never able to do before. A free and open data economy has just like free and open speech and free and open money, the ability for somebody from Iran to communicate, to share, and to com have commerce with anybody else on earth. And I want individuals to have the ability to take control uh, of their own data uh, and monetize it in whatever way. Uh, a free and open data economy is fully decentralized. So at the highest level, that's what I get up for every single day. This is season two of Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. Listen to founders, tech policy experts, and pioneers in impact investing, all sharing their relationship with data. Welcome, Bruce Vaughn, second time on Voices of the Data Economy. How are you today? I'm great, Diksha. Uh, great to be here again. Thank you so much. We are excited to have you too, Bruce. So most of the audience uh, at Voices of Data Economy know who you are and what is Ocean Protocol. But I'm sure there are some people who are listening to this podcast for the first time. So why don't you give us a brief introduction of the mission and vision of Ocean Protocol and how does it align with your personal mission and vision in life? Cool. Yeah, uh, Ocean is pretty much a, a decentralized Web3 protocol to give people tools to own and monetize their data. In a different word, and this is what we've been working on last year, it's essentially data orchestration pipelines. That's Web3 native. That's more for the technical crowd. Uh, I won't unpack that right now. We can talk about that later. Uh, but the data orchestration is particularly important for the AI researchers and data scientists, especially as they go from Web2 to Web3. Uh, and then just more pedestrian explanations. We're just a set of tools, software, smart contracts, and integrations with the singular goal to facilitate uh, data sharing, and it's bound by an ocean token. Awesome. That that was a great brief summary. So on, on top of this, I think we've spoken about things like data marketplace, data tokens, data NFTs in previous episodes of Voices of the Data Economy, and we'll also leave notes here for audience. But let's go to the ocean story here. So if I look back at the last two years, you know, or maybe you want to divide it just to 2022, can you share some examples of of like success stories, you know, in, in the terms of managing a data economy? Like what kind of data sets have worked on the data marketplace? What have been like your three successful milestones at Ocean? So uh, happy to jump into that. I think the important thing that I want to bring context to is that we're, we're still in an experimentation phase. The cracking open data economy is uh, a multi-decade project. And so we're, we're going to be making progress on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more, more of that. But there's a lot of experimentation. We've been on this journey since 2013. It's still nascent. It's still blue ocean. We're still all early with that. Um, 
the main aspect of 2022, which was really cool, was that we we stabilized the core product. Uh, we have lots of work to do still to simplify the flows, better align the tool to web tool uh, tools that people use, and to establish uh, to connect to establish kind of web two tools and stuff. But what's been really good is the Ocean DAO and the Shipyard uh, initiatives have brought out a lot of ideas where we could see where our community is standing and how they see the data economy, what tools, integrations, apps, etc. So that's something that we've taken into heart, and we're going to be moving on that in much uh, a much directed way, a much more directed way in 2023. Staking. We're now at, I think, a good equilibrium point with VE Ocean and data farming. VE Ocean, it's lossless staking. Uh, nobody's going to lose any money on that. Uh, by locking their VE Ocean, they're just going to get rewards. That's that passive side and then the active side is data farming where they can actually assign the ve ocean towards uh data sets there's a whole bunch of dynamics that are going to be worked out there those are huge successes and that's built on a lot of mistakes a lot of learnings where we had the amm based uh pricing minting of tokens and staking where people did lose some tokens and you know we, we made everybody whole on that and then finally the collaborations just continue daimler with the EU, Gaia X, Katina X, uh, Move ID, all that sort of stuff. The community-driven projects with uh, data unions, the AI researchers who are now in our community, as well as all the app developers who have tried to add to the Ocean Protocol. So I, I'd say those three. Community, the staking is now, I think, cleared up, and then the, the collaborations just continue onwards. Meanwhile, we've, uh, in the background, through all this initiative, we've stabilized the core product, and now we're looking forward to... Uh, a, a new way to organize ourselves, but organic still. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so one follow up on that um, community. You said one of one of the main things. So twenty twenty two has been a tough year for crypto, I think, and we all have seen that. I've been seeing the ocean community uh, for a long time. I'm also a contributor into other communities, and I have uh, witnessed, you know, the sentiment in communities sort of go down in 2022 real bad <laughs> so how have you um what have been your struggles with uh you know keeping the community motivated and were there any challenges or how has the community overall reacted to what's happened in 2022 or are the market dynamics or you said you had to hold some tokens and and you know all, all those kind of things so i i I think what's good is that at Ocean, there have not, in my mind, been a lot of unforced errors. I mean, as I said, we we tried out a whole bunch of different things with the AMMs uh, for pricing and minting and staking and stuff, and that didn't work out. But that I don't consider that an unforced error rather, rather than experimentation. So from the community perspective, I think we've done good by the community. We devoted a lot of time to just clean up everything and prepare for the downturn. So we're we're prepared to go into this downturn. I think it'll last another year or so. Um, and the the ethos that carries us forward now is that we we are very conservative. We're battle hardened. We've been through probably th two at least two of these before, and we've kept the cap on headcount. We have a smaller team size. Our burn rate is controlled. Uh, and every three to six months, there's somebody on my team who looks through 
line by line every single expense. So we're well positioned to focus on the core mission, reduce the distractions all around us, and then just continue delivering. So from the community perspective, I would say that it's natural that there's fatigue, that there's frustration, that there's pain from losing money. There's so many different ways that you could have lost money this year. Not a lot of ways that you could have made money, to be honest. And so we feel that. Uh, we've also felt that in the previous two downturns. And what this moment does is it takes away the tourists. It takes away the dilettantes. It takes away all the people who are not necessarily here. And it keeps the people who are really into crypto uh, or have a longer term horizon. That all works. Not bad that people leave and find other things. This this space moves so fast and it's so intense that some people just need a pause. They need to explore other things. So that's all good. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of a, a roundabout way of saying that I think the community is going to be fine. I think we have a core group of contributors as well as supporters, a large group of supporters. We never forget that. It's something we think about every single day. And all we can say is we're in there with you and we're going to be there when the crypto winter ends because we've been trying to be as conservative as possible to make sure that we are successful as one of the next projects that come out of this phase, um, kicking and screaming. Well, you have been there, so you will be there and you have seen many cycles. And so is there anything different that you see in this cycle? And, and, you know, I think the most important question is that we should all ask all founders at this point is that what makes you optimistic about Web3 at this particular moment that we are talking? We are well positioned. Uh, if I look at 2014 with Mt. Gox, that was probably the, the climax of that phase, right? There was Bitcoin. Great. But the the other thing that I had was just a meme. It, it was an idea for a movement to own your own money, be, be your own bank. That was it. 2018, we funded about 200 ICO projects. We had the very first tentative apps, but there was nothing really hitting product market fit except Ethereum and the concept of public fundraising globally. Um, and out of that, 20 or 30 teams survived. Ocean was one of them. 2022. Let's 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 be honest. Dozens of unicorn projects, thousands of projects funded, countries opening up access to crypto and digital nomads, uh, and making uh, Bitcoin and crypto legal tender. Dexes, they're handling volumes in excess of what Visa and Mastercard do on a daily basis. We have 150 million wallets. We have probably a quarter trillion dollars on the sidelines waiting to buy up the crypto. So I would say there is nothing but optimism. Don't be like Paul Krugman, who mistook uh, uh, temporary setbacks as something that would kill innovation and adoption. That's not happening. Um, betting it all on a bull market would be dangerous. Betting it all in a bear market at the bottom, all you need is time. So when there's blood on the streets, everybody's puking, they're tapping out because it feels like it just can't get any worse or bleak. That's when you enter the ring. That's when it takes conviction and courage, some adventure, and a lot of fortitude. And I would say that more than ever, being through this two times already, I've seen how it happens. I am betting it all, like personally, within this company, uh, because I, I have been there. And I know that anybody who sticks around is going to be rewarded. 
So I have nothing but optimism for this space because if you look back to 2014, 2018, and where we are now, it's still an exponential curve and we're still early. Yeah, I think that's what I keep saying. We are, we are still early. We are still early. And most people feel that, oh, they are already too late to get into, into Web3 and crypto. Um, so I think one thing that is concerning even people like me, uh, though I've been sort of in the industry for, for a long time, is that what do we as a community or we as people in the ecosystem or founders or all stakeholders need to do differently, especially after the FTX incident and where, you know, trust has been broken. I mean, I don't think I could imagine that something like this would happen. And I think most people that I spoke to were like, oh, no, I think we've gone like years back in the industry with this. This is so bad. So um, what do you now looking forward? What do all of us need to do differently as um, people in the community or stakeholders to, let's say, grow forward or gain back trust or keep looking at the positive side of this? Well, I mean, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is take money off the table. Remember the feeling that you have right now and the gut-wrenching hole in your stomach because you didn't take enough off at the peak. We all feel that. We're all, every, we're all in the same boat, right? Like this is a, a what do you call it? A, a group therapy session on a podcast. We all feel that gut wrench. And it's important to keep that um, in mind because the next cycle is coming. We're all going to have a shot again. And to really focus on your um, risk management, take off enough for you and your family, for your needs, for your health, treat yourself, stay humble, uh, but just keep building. You know, with FDX, people outside have a hard time distinguishing between crypto and FDX, but FDX embodied the worst of the existing financial system, centralized control, opaqueness in the books, buying political influence and cover, outright fraud, lies, and virtue signaling while robbing people. Crypto, on the other hand, has had complete transparency of the books. Orderly unwindings of billions of dollars time and again, time and again. The ability for people to withdraw to hard wallets when the, when it got too hot and they felt insecure. I think crypto has succeeded. Obviously, people outside haven't seen that. They don't understand. They don't make the, the, they can't distinguish between crypto and FTX. So I don't think FTX set us back in any way. Those who knew, those who know, know. And we have a two, like I said, 2014, 2018, 2022. We have a two-year run-up. Everything's great. You're looking at maybe uh, for the first time in your life, like looking at how much does a private jet cost or how much does a boat cost or what would it be to buy a place in Spain? And then you have a two-year detox, get rid of the tourists and the scammers. But with every cycle, the curve becomes more and more compelling, unstoppable, and crypto is just going to be adopted. So, you know, what do we learn from this? Take money off. Stay humble. Keep building. Don't lose sight. Um, and yeah, tourists come and tourists go. But in the end, the people who stay, we're going to be all right. And what do you feel um, about the VC industry putting money into Web3 uh, now? Is that going to 
I mean, I know you really can't predict that, but do you feel any changes, like any sentiment? Because I think a lot of it also happened because most of the traditional VCs really wanted to get into crypto and they were like, okay, let's just dump as much money we can. Um, and yeah, I won't take names, but but that was really happening, right? And uh, that also led to a lot of hype. So is this going to impact the kind of VC money that's coming into crypto? And I think also a, a controversial like question is that, is VC money good for crypto? Wow. That's a tough question. I've I've been on both sides of the table. So now you know. Now I I I I I'm privileged to have done angel investments myself. Um, but I've also dealt with hundreds of VCs. Unfortunately, VCs is for former investment bankers, uh, former people like like people who are high net worth or have very well connections to do their own type of signaling. They follow a path and they don't necessarily do proper due diligence on projects. That's good and bad, by the way. It means that some projects that should never have gotten funding get funding and get the hype. Um, and frauds can continue and do their stuff. But it also means that projects who don't get a look at by more established VCs get funding to continue. And if you look at something like Polygon, Polygon's a great example. They, the founders asked for five or six million. They got laughed out of Silicon Valley. In the end, they, they, they put together a friends and family round in India and look at them now. They are one of the biggest successes out there. Uh, and that's amazing. You look in Romania, Elrond, another project. They got a little bit more backing, but nobody knows who they are. But they have over and above delivered because of their network as well as some VCs who believe in them. So, yes, virt- uh, VC money is good. Yes, VC money corrupts and lets a lot of frauds and scams through the gate that shouldn't be let through. But I would always err on destroying capital of many VCs in order to get two or three gems that contribute to the rest of the world. I mean, when Ethereum came out in 2014, the white paper was written in late 2014, and it was overwhelmingly, the people I spoke to, 95 out of, out of 100 people said it was a scam. Probably one of the worst bets you could have done from a financial perspective if you had the privilege of even knowing about Ethereum. So uh, VCs, you know, it is what it is. It's money. We need money for the innovation. We need it for all the other stuff. There's, uh, black, you know, dark sides to VCs and stuff like that, corrupting influences. But as a founder... As a, a community member, VCs are your friends because they bring money. Uh, and uh, as long as we get, you know, in this round, we got like probably 20 unicorns uh, out of this, uh, all this funding rounds. I, I think it pays for all the losses. Yeah. As in an aggregate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So coming back to Ocean now, um, you know, it's data. Economy. Actually, this was a question that somebody uh, DM'd me on Twitter. I don't know the real name of this person, but uh, but I actually tweeted that, what should we ask Bruce? And I think this was one of the questions that, so, you know, the use case has been data economy and having basically a free um, world on the internet where we own our data, nobody can ban us, etc. And now um, 
we see on Twitter that a lot of personalities are coming back on Twitter that were banned earlier. And in the name of freedom of speech, uh, there are some things that we were not okay with as as uh, people being there on, on the internet. So somebody wants to know, <laughs> I will disclose the name once I know, that how does Ocean Protocol, like you basically, uh, Bruce, feel about these personalities um, coming back on a social media platform, even though they could have destructive effects on um, mass audience? The first image that comes to mind is a car wreck. When there's a car wreck, and I've seen this on the Autobahn, I've seen too many of these on the Autobahn, your first instinct is that you want to slow down, you want to watch. But in the back of your head, you know that there's somebody who got hurt. So we as humans, it brings out, you know, it's almost like a Lex Friedman, you know, idea in that we as humans, there's the dark and there's the good in us. And the ability for freedom of speech allows for the, the marketplace of ideas to thrive. And within that marketplace, there's the deep, dark part of every single one of us humans. And there's a, a small minority who's willing to say out loud the worst of us. I don't like it. But in a free and open society, you would rather that that marketplace of ideas allows this than to suppress it. Because if you suppress it, it goes somewhere else and it, it metastasizes other parts where you cannot see. And it's up to us as humans to not give attention to the ideas that we might find abhorrent or morally wrong according to our own spectrum of judgment. That's pretty much how I feel. So all in all, yes, let them back on. But control your own inner demons and angels so that they get the attention that they deserve and not assent more if necessary. So now that you explained this to me, what is your vision of a free new data economy on the internet, or I would say Web3 uh, particularly? More, more macro question, more philosophical question, but what is your vision of that? Speech, money, data. There is no distinguishing factor between that. They're all currencies. They're all value. Um, they're all something that you can now transport and own and digitize that you were never able to do before. We just learned that with Bitcoin, where it was a fringe concept of owning your own money. And a free and open data economy has, just like free and open speech and free and open money, the ability for somebody from Iran to communicate, to share, and to com have commerce with anybody else on Earth. It's for some kid in Africa. It's for someone in South America. It's for someone in the, in the, in Detroit, in the hood to get agency in a world where there's a lot of people, shadowy powers, whatever conspiracy theories of people who control large portions. And I want individuals to have the ability to take control 
uh, of their own data uh, and monetize it in whatever way. And for data scientists to then access it in an ethical manner uh, where people opt in, where uh, we have provenance of the data. So that when AI is trained, we know where the biases lie, but also who owned that data. Uh, as well as global borderless micropayments, monetizing IP, transferring value, all these things, speech, money, data. It's all the same thing. And so if Ocean does its job well, we focus mainly on the data side. But um, I find that, like, obviously, who can say no to, like, who can who can say yes to terrorism? Nobody can. Who can say yes to money laundering? Nobody can. We all oppose that. But I think that the world that has been created and the structures that were designed exclude more people than they protect. So uh, a free and open data economy is fully decentralized. We as a team look every single day, how do we make our stack, the ocean stack, more and more decentralized so that people don't have to trust any of the ocean team members. Rather, they just have to look in the code and they know that it's decentralized. So at the highest level, that's what I get up for every single day. So you also mentioned data scientists in your, in, that you were just speaking. Now, when I meet data scientists in conferences or I talk to them or sometimes they come on this podcast, I would say 70 to 80% of them are clueless about blockchain and Web3. And the question that they have is, why should we be interested? What can it add to us? Why should I invest time in, in learning about this? So maybe you can give this answer once and for all <laughs> to data scientists. It's, unfortunately, it's going to be a 10-year process to educate. Uh, you know, we're still early. And, and that's why it's, we're such an experimental phase. It's blue ocean. Data economy is just starting. So I expect this question to come for the next five years. So just like Bitcoin was a fringe concept, only 10 years later do people with the experience of seeing lockdowns, hearing about CBDCs, the trucker protests, deplatforming, KYC barriers for people to onboard through like completely innocent, well-meaning people who just want to convert uh, commerce cannot participate. People understand the value of Bitcoin as this uncensorable form of money. It's the same with data. It's a little bit different. Um, we have copyright laws. We have intellectual property laws, all that sort of stuff. But there's a hundreds of tools emerging for data and AI uh, where there's, there's challenges. And these are some of them. Training data. What's the provenance? Where does it come from? What are the biases? What we've uh, seen just as an example, is pharmacological data from the past 50 years has been mainly biased towards a white European male around 40 years old. That ignores ethnic differences, that ignores gender differences, and a host of other types of differences. Um, and training data provenance through a data economy that's blockchain secured helps to under, us to understand that. Because right now, everybody needs to go back to those pharmacological studies and figure out what those biases are. Um, and then now we may need to do retesting on many of the drugs that are out there today to make sure that the impacts to like a small woman who's 80, uh, like 45 kilograms versus a man who is like 60 kilograms, dosages, all that sort of stuff. Training data problems is one. Orchestrating data flows across multiple tools and platforms. So right now, if you're a data scientist, you, you try to work on one or two tools or platforms, but 
you can't. You you have to go to Excel. You download a CSV. You go to this site. Do this, that. You know, put it in your notebook. You know, all that sort of stuff. Ideally, if Ocean is designed well, that you can orchestrate across all that. So there's like a menu you choose here. You go there. You do this. You do this transformation. Process it. Analytics. Dump it somewhere else. It's an orchestration that number one is managed through a decentralized manner, so that there's a provenance and there's a tracking on it. It's never forgotten. And secondly, you own it. That intellectual property of a process of 25 steps through multiple tools and actions, you own. You can actually sell that as an industrial process. That's cool. What else does uh, blockchain does? Do global borderless micropayments data. None of the stuff that we do nowadays is geographically bound. That, that's the Web2 world. That's the bricks and mortar world. The world we operate in is borderless. And so... The fact that I have to use Visa, MasterCard, or I have to like enter in my address and stuff when I have to buy things or what have you, or I have to KYC for whatever reason, I, I that's not a world I want to live in. I, I want to create a world where if I'm a data scientist and somebody needs to use my data, of course they have filters on who can use the data or how they can use it, maybe, uh, or at least the choice to do that. But I don't care if the kid who's who's buying my stuff is from Mongolia or Russia or whatever, maybe Russia right now, but that's a different topic. Um. Monetizing intellectual property, uh, transferring value. There's a whole bunch of things where Ocean as an orchestration layer help to solve problems where we haven't really thought of because we just assumed that it wasn't possible until now. Yeah. I don't I know if that answered do. the question. Yeah, yeah, it does. I I think we need to probably do a piece on this, you know, what's there for data scientists um in, in, in this technology. And uh, probably this question could also go for different stakeholders, you know, that you're trying to um, target or reach uh, is, is the right word. So who are the different stakeholders that can actually come on board? And uh, yeah, I, I don't think we've actually covered this on <laughs> on the podcast before. So why don't you give us a sense of that? And also probably a follow-up to, to it is, that has it changed over the years? Like, are you reaching more and more groups of, of people? Yeah, great question, because I think, you know, at the very start, we needed funding. So we targeted crypto enthusiasts. We, we spoke from a, a place of what we had as expertise towards data scientists, but the main thing was crypto enthusiasts. And then in the last couple of years, we've targeted enterprises and developers so we could build, have people to contribute to the core code base as well as enterprise was something that I think the community really demanded of us. Moving forward, we're focusing on data scientists, AI, um, as well as the users. Uh, 2023, it'll be use case driven. It'll be what does a data scientist need to set up a, a data orchestration pipeline? What does a user need in order for them to have privacy preserving computation for their algorithm? How do they load the algorithm? How do they get a an indicator that their algorithm is completely safe? There's some sort of cryptographic bond that, that tells them what's happened and stuff like that, improvable. That's the angle we're going to go for. So Ocean from 2017, 2022, building the core tech, really getting into the crypto community, developing a base of community who are developers, enterprise, data scientists, you know, everything. Now, moving forward for the next couple of years, I just want to focus on use cases that really simplify, make Web3 more natural and organic, uh, 
and integrate with the existing tools in the Web2 space. So that's how it's changed. We started with crypto, went in the middle with what kind of everybody wants us, wanted us to do, which was enterprise. And in the end, I think we're just going to focus on the narrow case of, of data scientists, users, AI researchers. Um, and I think that if we can do that and execute on that plan, Ocean will be successful and that'll make all the crypto enthusiasts happy. Hmm. So you said in um, data, speech and money, right? Is the three yep. components of, of data economy. And how far are we, Bruce, from having uh, like having this dream <laughs> data economy? I know you can't put a number to it, but or maybe you can say that how early are we or how, how far are we? So uh, the uh, crypto blockchain, it's a general purpose technology. It's this concept that was first born in 2005 by Richard Lipsy. He's a Canadian. Talked about probably 30 technologies that have driven humanity forward. 30. There's only 30. And from these 30, you can develop probably thousands of innovations and they build on each other. Blockchain crypto is one of them. Nowadays, to roll out a general purpose technology takes about 30 years. If you think about it, it's a generation. It takes one generation. In other words, the people who are 60 or 70 or 50 or 60, they need to retire. They need to die, unfortunately. And the generation of 20-year-olds comes and implements the ideas that we're doing now. 30 years. So money, speech, data. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. We're all early. I'm going to be retired in maybe 10 years or something like that. So somebody else is going to pick up the baton. But we got another 20 to 30 years of this. Uh, but the power of what we're doing is immense. We're going to give agency to 8,000 people. Not everybody's going to take it. A small minority, a small fraction are going to actually take it to take control over their data, their speech, their money and stuff. But the ability for them to have that option when they realize it, when it's important, when there's utility to it, that's what we're building towards. Hmm, that's an optimistic note. Um, and then I'm going to take two questions, actually, from, again, uh, Twitter. Okay, so one is, um, <laughs> okay, has GDPR worked? Like, I don't know, that's exactly the question. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, yes and no. Um, I think that putting a stake in the ground and saying people should own their data and people have the right to have some sort of control, absolutely good. Implementation, uh, like the cookies on your websites and the fines and stuff like that, I think that's, I think that it's going to metastasize into something that we hate. We already hate the cookies. I mean, every single website, we hate it. It sucks. It's a crappy implementation. I think what's better is that when your data is generated, it goes into your data vault. In that data vault, there's different segmentations, freely shareable, partially shareable and, uh, under certain conditions, not shareable at all. And then for what use cases, all that sort of stuff. And I think that if we can go to a world like that, you don't need GDPR because by default, the data, when you have a smart contract that talks, talks to an opposing smart contract, uh, matches up, you have cryptographic certainty that let's say it was a a health company tracking your data to help predict a rare heart disease. And you're like, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with the pharmacy company making money off that because if, if we can solve this, then, you know, we've reduced the cost of the drug development. Maybe someday I need that, whatever. So I'm willing to share that. 
But if it was something like targeting for political ads, I won't do that. No, no, absolutely not. Whatever. That allows GDPR to live in spirit, but not in the way it's been implemented. And I'm trying to go for an implementation of GDPR that wasn't as prescribed as what the European Union tried to do, but rather something more organic and gives people true control, not just clicking a button, accept all cookies, mm. reject all, or just saying, I just don't care anymore. I'm just going to say yes. Yeah, yeah. But is it helping me when I'm rejecting all these cookies? That's we don't know, right? You know, it's like it's like sales tax. If you go to America, one of the biggest frustrations as a, uh, I think, a European or a Southeast Asian or where, wherever you come, you show up in North America and you see something for $10. And then at the end, it's like $12.50. Like, what happened? It's all the sales tax that you see. Did it yeah. help that you understood what tax you saw? Like that you're paying? Kind of. Does it really help? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So you clicking yes, no, whatever to cookies doesn't help you. It, it, it shows you how little control you have over what, like it essentially exposes you to what people were already doing before. But do you have more power? No, you don't. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good answer. Um, okay, and here's one more. What kind of projects is Ocean... Okay, I'll rephrase it. So I think this person is asking, what kind of projects are you willing to give uh, grants to? Uh, so so what is it that you are looking for um, uh, in, in different grants? What should people build? Example, think... data, yeah. Yeah, sorry. sorry, go ahead. Example, uh, data unions. Yeah. Sure. I think the main thing is that it's not a specific topic. It is a combination of a few things. Uh, a grant size that's rational. Let's say between two and $30,000. It is a time frame that gives us time to see the feedback. So if it's between one week and three months, I think that's pretty good. Anything longer, you know, you can lose track. I think those are the kind of the two. And then the third one is just obviously the credibility of the team. Is the team kind of young, in college, and willing to like essentially just cover their costs in order to make this happen? That's a pretty good sign. They could be older. They could be older and just say, you know what, I got, I got a great idea. They have a lot of experience, but they, they're willing to say, you know what, I, I I'm going to take time away from what I could be doing to try on this. Maybe they ask for a little bit more money, but there's a certain kind of judgment call that we're going to make based on those three factors. Yeah. Your commitment, the amount that you're asking for and the time frame of feedback where we can see, you know, is this person just trying to get free money or are they, you know, are they actually making a go at it? So um, can you also maybe give an example of one of the projects that, um, I don't know if you can pick up like the best, uh, is it fair? But generally the, the uh, you know, use cases that you thought, were, oh, wow, you're building this great. Like, do you have any of those examples? I think we're there now. I think I'm not going to pick out one. What I will say is that I think next week we have the Builder Summit. Mm-hmm. We're going to showcase a lot of the shipyard uh, participants. And then I think there's another Builder Summit uh, a week or two after that, which is showcasing Ocean Dow participants. 
all of them have kind of passed through the filter, delivered something of value, and we want to showcase uh, small, medium, large projects, but they've all added value to the ocean ecosystem as well as to themselves, I hope, and are in some ways viable products moving on to the future and we will continue supporting them. So I think that's probably the way I'd like to answer that because there's just so much goodness out there. So many people who believe in this and who follow ocean because our values align with their values. And that's all we can ask for. Okay. So thank you, Bruce Bond. I think before finishing, we always ask this to our guests. What is your last message uh, to people about data ownership? You know, as I said, uh, I'll repeat myself. It's a long journey. We've got decades ahead of us. I think we're directionally correct as ocean. Uh, it, it's unknown how it all looks. We're in an experimentation phase. And as long as the community has patience for us to experiment and experiment with us, we're going to be able to move forward. Uh, yeah, uh, as long as we have the core values. And, and that's what I really hope uh, that we convey, I convey personally. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's good. We're going to make a data economy. It's going to happen one way or the other. The only question is how, how good is it going to be? How empowering is it going to be for people? Or how dystopian is it going to be? And so that's why my, my hat is in the ring. So I can fight for the one that gives the most people the most opportunity and control. Looking forward to it. And so great chatting to you after two years. Hope next time we don't take such a long break and have you at a gap of one year, Bruce. And I wish you a good day. Thanks for coming. And for our audience, please rate our podcast on Apple. Download it. It means a lot. And thank you for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye.